Here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to transition and get on into the book of Thessalonians. Um, I'm sorry, Thessalonians. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Galatians. That's what we want to talk about. Galatians. Open up to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. And maybe we're supposed to teach Thessalonians. You know, who knows? Um, Galatians chapter 2 is where we're at right now. So you guys open up in your Bibles right there. And uh, I'm going to tell you very briefly as to what we've been doing. And then we're going to read the passage. Then I'll pray. Then we'll get to work on this. We started several weeks ago a series going through the book of Galatians. We have already made it to chapter 2, uh, which is kind of a miracle. There's a lot of stuff that we've been looking at. A lot of content. It's very rich, very thick in terms of content. In fact, last week... Uh, we spent a lot of time looking at one subject, and that was it. We looked at particularly the subject matter called justification by grace. Very, very big theme. Uh, it's the very first time that Paul actually officially starts talking about it in this very huge book um, in terms of uh, theological content. And so we basically today are going to be kind of eating table scraps from what we didn't cover last week. So, but everybody knows, as great as Thanksgiving is, everybody knows the real meal starts at like 8 o'clock at night, all right, right? I mean, you've already eaten at like 3 o'clock. You've, you've watched a football game or two. You're laying on the couch. You've already taken like two naps. Now it's 8 o'clock, right? 8 o'clock means you go into the refrigerator and you get the leftovers. And everybody knows that the leftovers are, are actually the best, right? Friday comes, the best is yet to come because now you're still living off the leftovers. In, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what we're doing today. Last week was our Thanksgiving feast. We ate justification by grace. It was a huge meal. I think I preached probably the longest sermon I've ever preached. It was probably like a, an hour and ten minutes. It's very long, right? Some of you probably had no idea because it was just so good, right? You're like, this is good, right? All right? All right? Anyways, bad. Anyways, my point is that it was long. We had a lot of thick theological concepts that we looked at and talked about. It was really big. So today we're going to be kind of picking up a lot of the leftovers that we didn't consume last week and uh, be kind of looking at some of the afterthoughts that Paul has. But in reality, I think a lot of this is even kind of greater. It's big subject matter that hopefully God will speak to us as we make our way through this, looking at some of these big things. Big theme that we're really going to be focusing on today is the subject matter really of God's love. Last week we looked at the justice of God and how can a just God actually justify or make right. If God is righteous, how can God righteous-fy human beings? Which we already know, that's not a word. I made it up. And, uh, but it's the idea. How can a just God justify? How can a righteous God righteous-fy unrighteous people and unjust people? We saw that last week. Today we're going to be focusing more upon the concept of God's love. That not only does God justify us, in other words, clean our slate and leave us guiltless, He's actually a God that goes even beyond that. It's not just him saying, I'm going to zero out your debt. It's God actually saying, I'm going to put some in the bank. I'm going to pad the account. I'm going to flood you with not just a zero balance, but I'm going to flood you with my love. I want you to know that I'm not just not angry anymore, but I actually love you. Some of you need to hear this. You need to really think through the logic that Paul's really going to be talking about here. Because this is really what the heart of the gospel gets to, what it's all about. So I want to read the passage that we're going to be picking up here today in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read down about the uh, verse 21 or the end of the chapter. It says this. But in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? 
Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I have torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God, right now we ask you that you would help us, enable us. We realize that these these are big concepts in a lot of ways. They're not the part of thinking which we typically have in our normal day-to-day conversations, our day-to-day life. These concepts in a lot of ways are foreign to us. The fact that a holy, righteous God would actually pay the price for sinful people. Take the bullet for somebody else who actually the bullet was intended for. That's what you've done. So God, these are foreign concepts. They're hard for us to understand, but God... They are central to the gospel. They're central to your message. They are central to the good news. So God, I pray right now that you would help us to get these, to understand them, to live them out, to let them make their way in terms of implications in our lives and through our lives, that we would live out these things. And God, so that means that if there's those here today that are just radically struggling with trying to be made right with you by being religious, by doing good things, by acting certain ways in terms of morality... Pray, God, that you would help them just to see that all that effort is worthless. It can't top the cross. It can't be better than the cross. It can't be better than what Jesus did. And, God, on the other hand, those that are, have just given up, they just feel as if they are too far gone, they're so bad of sinners, that they also would see that nobody's beyond your grace. Nobody is beyond that limit. There is no limit. So God, I pray that you would bring both sinner and want-to-be-righteous person together and allow us just to sit at the feet of the cross and remember what you did for us and find our hearts renewed in love, find our affections raised, and God, that we would give our worship and adoration to you while confessing sin, while confessing our devotion to false gods. So we give you this time right now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to jump right in. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm basically just going to tell you. I'm going to look at three things here today. And that's it. That's it. Three things. Because um, I spoke for so long last week. I'm going to actually try to keep this a little bit short here today. And uh, we'll, then we'll get some time just to go into worship and just really consider the things. If we're going to be talking about God's love, which is what we're going to be looking at, I really want to have some time for us to really give worship and love back to God, which is one of the reasons really the main reason why we meet here on Sunday mornings. We love God's word. We love hearing God's word. It's a major part of what we do here. But in reality, the the bigger part, the bigger context by which we're here is not just to get some sort of uh, intellectual stirring or stimulation, but more than that, it's so that our hearts would be moved and stirred. So that it's not just simply giving us information, but rather that the gospel would leave an impression. And that impression would move our hearts to worship God, to love God. To thank him. So with that being said, the three things that we're going to basically focus on today is in verses 17 to 18. We're going to look at this larger concept. In some ways, this is, these are sort of the, uh, the leftovers of last week. That we are, one, justified as sinners. What, what does that look like? What does that mean that we are justified as sinners? Secondly, we'll take a look at verses 19 to 20. This idea that we are identified with Christ. I introduced a, a really big theological theme last week that I didn't get a chance to 
uh, really unpack that much. And it's this idea that Christ is our, our family head. Um, and, and I didn't really get a chance to thoroughly unpack it. I'm going to try to do a little bit better job of it this week. But Christ actually is our head by which we're identified with. Uh, the last thing, we'll take a look at the fact that we're actually loved by God. Paul mentions this theme. He says that um, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the grace of the Son of God who loved me. We're going to emphasize the reality of what it means to be loved by God. So with that being said, let's take a look at the whole idea of what it means to be justified as sinners. In the context that Paul is trying to argue here, he's just gotten finished uh, telling this Galatian group of believers, to whom he's writing his letter, uh, that he basically rebukes one of the apostles, a guy by the name of Peter. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the gospel is, is so easy, so simple that a child can actually get it right, but it's also tricky enough and difficult enough that even an aged, well-known, advanced, sage, apostle like Peter can actually get it wrong. That's why Paul says, I rebuked Peter to his face. And Paul actually didn't say, because Peter sinned, that's why I rebuked him. Although sin is incorporated in that. But even what Paul does is he puts into a larger theme, a larger column, a larger context. And he says the real issue, that reason why I rebuked Peter, was not just because he was a sinner, he did something dumb. But what Peter was doing was he was walking out of sync with the gospel. So the real issue, if we really want to be right in thinking about biblical terms and try to get this in terms of a biblical manner, it's not just so much we're talking about, are you sinning? It's not like we walk around with a clipboard and like middle management looking for people that are sinners. Have you met that person? They're like the sin police, sin middle management. They're walking around, they're looking to make sure, checking out your Facebook. It looks like you're sinning. Is that a beer you're drinking? Oh my gosh, it's a light beer. That's even worse. You know, and this sort of mentality of like looking for things that you've done that they're just wanting to somehow condemn you for and judge you for, all right? But really the issue is not just so much trying to track people down and find out whether or not they're sinning or not. The real issue is that really we should be concerned about is are we walking in step with the gospel? Are we as a church walking in step with the gospel? Are my family members in the, the gospel walking in step with the gospel? Are the people in my community group walking in step with the gospel? Are the people sitting next to me walking in step with the gospel? Because I think what oftentimes happens, one of the reasons why Christians get so uptight about sin, is it's almost as if you get offended by the sin. When in reality, sin is an offense towards God. We might be affected by it, but in reality, at the end of the day, what we should really be concerned about thinking about is, are our lives in sync, in line with the gospel? We looked at that word a couple weeks ago, and it's this idea of walking in a straight line that the gospel sets out for us. So what we understand that Paul is saying is that Peter's not walking in step with the gospel because his actions are sending this confusion to the rest of the believers that's causing other people to perhaps think that the way you get made right with God is by Jesus and eating kosher. Or trust Jesus and live according to Jewish cultural tradition. It's sending this confusing message. Now Peter knows that's not the way that you're made right with God. Peter knows that. Acts chapter 10, Peter goes through this radical storyline, radical narrative, as if God just sort of steeped him into the storyline to basically say, Peter, the way that I save people is not by their adherence to a particular cultural identity. I save them strictly on the basis of Jesus. So Peter understands that, but unfortunately, Peter falls under peer pressure and begins to walk out of step with the gospel. And as a result of that, gets rebuked. So uh, his life is sending out confusing messages as to how one is made right with God. So what Paul does, he wants to bring Peter back, as well as the readers to whom he's writing to in Galatia, 
back to an understanding as to how we are made right with God. You need to know this. You need to understand that how we're made right with God is that God saves sinners. That's Paul's whole point. Take a look at the verse that he says in verse 17. He says, but if we, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Here's what I think Paul's basically saying. Is that if the way that God saves us, or justifies us, or declares us right, in right standing with God, is while we're still sinners then basically what that means is that the raw material that God uses to save us is sin. It's the raw material. It's what God uses. So in other words, the fact that we are sinners is what qualifies us to be made right with God. If you have this mentality of, I don't really need Jesus, I can work hard, I can donate a lot of money, I can spend a lot of my energy and my time trying to make myself right with God, if that's the mentality of the pursuit that you approach God with, or you just say, I'm very religious and I do things my own way, thank you, I don't need God, then what Paul's basically saying is, is you, your efforts will actually lead to a dead end. You cannot be made right with God by those means. You just can't. But if your approach is to say, I'll take Jesus and these religious you know, trinkets by which I'm going to be made right with God, Paul's saying you're, you're actually adding to Jesus. In a lot of ways, you're actually nullifying the work that Jesus has already done. So what you're actually saying by those endeavors is to say, Jesus' work on the cross was great, I love it. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But it's not quite enough. I need to add to it. It's not quite enough. I need to do something more. Because for God to really accept me, for God to really love me, for God to really wash me and cleanse me, to purify me and remove sin, and to walk straight with God, I've I've got to do these five or six different things in order to be made right with God. And when you you have this, this is one of the reasons why religious people are so cantankerous. If you've been around them. I mean, I'm, I'm even talking Christian religious people, all right? It's because they have this mentality of like, we just got to grit out the kingdom of God. We just clench our teeth and we just push through. We just make ourselves pray. We make ourselves read our Bible. We just make ourselves go out and tell people about Jesus because it's just the right thing to do, right? And you're like, that seems really horrible. Like, I mean, can you imagine a married couple? Just like, I just got to tell my stinking wife I love her. I got to buy her flowers i got to make her dinner. You know, I mean, you'd look at that marriage and be like, there's something really wrong here. Counseling, definitely counseling, or therapy or something. Lobotomy, something, right? Something's not right there. And sometimes we carry that same idea and mentality into the Christian walk. We're like, i just got to do it. i got to make it happen. And the reality is, something's not quite right. You're not getting the gospel. You're not walking in line with the gospel. So Paul's point is that, in reality... It's when we're sinners, when we sin, that's when Jesus saved us. That's when he plucked us out. So we ask the question hypothetically, does that make Jesus a servant of sin? Paul's point is that no. Jesus actually saves sinners. That's the point. And he goes on, he finishes his little train of thought. He says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's basically referring to what Peter said, is that, listen, as, as Peter, you're, you're rebuilding something culturally that God's already torn down. It has no meaning whatsoever. What, you know, and you're building, rebuilding it. Paul's like, what you're doing really doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if Jesus is really the means by which you're made right with God, and you're adding things to that, you're just kind of wasting your time, Peter. Just look at Jesus. Just run to Jesus. Just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Love Jesus. And everything will be fine, which is where you should be. Here's what you need to understand. Is that this is, to some degree, really where Christianity is unique in and of itself. Let me, let me explain what I mean. 
all other Christian or all, all other religions, and for the most part, even Christian versions or cults that are more or less Christianized versions of somebody taking it and sort of modifying it, they basically have these two themes in common. One, they have this approach to humanity and God this way. They will either say, you're an absolute failure, and God is completely just, and he's very, very upset with you. He's very angry with you. He's very frustrated because you haven't been good, you haven't been reading your Bible enough, you haven't been giving enough, you haven't been acting good, you've been mistreating your wife, then your wife mistreats the kids, then the kids get mad and they mistreat the dog, dog mistreats the cat, cat mistreats the mouse in the backyard. Everybody's really miserable. And God's really angry because of your behavior. And so oftentimes religious groups and cults will say, here's the way to get right, here's the way to make things better. You go through these particular steps, you tithe this certain amount of money, you give your energy and your time, your efforts to this particular thing, you read this particular book, go to this particular seminar, sing these particular songs, and, and then you will be made right with God. This is how it happens, this is how it works out. So again, one starts out, says God's really angry, and you're really bad, and he's very upset with you, um, and here's how you get God to basically be on your side by doing these particular things. Or the other flip side of it is basically, you're completely loved, God's really not as mad as the preacher sets out to say, to declare. He's, 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 he's not angry. He's not grumpy. He's, he's just love. He's love. And everybody else is just misre- misrepresented him. And God will one day just forgive everybody, everything, everything that they've done, meaning he's not just, but he's loving. And what will oftentimes happen in this particular setting is that you will try to basically, you, you'll end up becoming hard on, on yourself in this particular setting. And the point of the matter is, is these two basically take the concept of God and distort it and mess it up. So either one, God is all loving and not just, or God is all just and not loving. And what Christianity does is it basically says, no, God is all just and God is all loving. He's both. He's both. And this is what the gospel basically declares, is because God is all just, God has to judge sin. He has to judge it. Like we talked last week, we thoroughly looked at this larger concept of why we have rules and justice even in our own culture. But the reality is, so I won't go back and talk about that, but the point that I would make is this, is that because God is just, but he's also loving, so that means that he also provides the solution whereby we can be made justified, or righteousified, or declared right in a relationship with God. So here's the way the gospel basically lays this out. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says this, To the one who believes on him or in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So again, the question is, is who does God justify? Paul's really clear. It's the ungodly. It's not the righteous. See, a lot of other religions, they're like, look, here's what you got to do. Follow these steps. Walk this particular way. Climb on your knees. Pray these prayers. Face this particular direction. Do it in this particular manner, at these particular times throughout the day, and you'll be fine. You'll be made right with God. And basically, the Bible says the exact opposite. It says, God actually comes to you when you're at your lowest, when you're at your most sinful, when you are ungodly, which basically means unlike God. When you are least like God, when you are at your absolute worst, ultimate lowest is when God comes to you, and that's when he declares you just. See, this is what's troubling sometimes for some people. They're like, well, I thought Christianity was about, you know, God making bad people good. No, it's actually not. Now, God does sanctify us, and there is a process whereby we begin to be 
we've got new desires, and those new desires lead us to act differently. But this is where, these, this is where ultimately people kind of get mixed up, and they think, you know, Christianity is about God saving good people, right? Everybody at church are all good people. You may have believed that myth when you walked in here, like, I'm going to hang out with a bunch of good people. Well, look around you. I mean, some of you guys are okay, but some of you guys aren't that good. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I, I know I deal with a lot of y'all throughout the week, and, and some of you, I mean, the bottom line is this, is that we're, we're not all good. Some of you might even say the same thing about me. They're like, I've read that guy's Facebook wall. Some of the stuff he says is lame. I know, I'm pretty messed up. But that's my point, is that God justifies us while we're even yet ungodly, unlike God. That's, that's the qualifier. So the second thing I want you to notice in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, when did Jesus die for us? When did his death become appropriate into our lives? When we were still in sin. Not just unlike God, but actually sinful, full of sin, unlike God. That's when Jesus came and died for you. This is really good news for those of you who receive it. What this does is this basically puts Christians in a different category. It's not that we believe in an all-holy, all-mighty, all-just God who's not loving, and therefore we try really hard to please the gods or the God who's very grumpy, very cantankerous, and very just, you have no idea what you're going to get from day to day. And so we're never certain as to what's going to happen. So we're always worried. We're always worried. We're always nervous. Thunderstorm hits, we think it's God who's angry. Car accident takes place, we think it's judgment. Child gets sick with something, we think I've done something wrong. That's what happens. It's one of the reasons why pagan religions for the past thousands of years have always been essentially the same. No matter what continent you go to, no matter what jungle you climb into, no matter what type of cave you discover, it's all the same. It's all the same. The gods are angry. Everybody knows it. How do we appease the gods? What do we sacrifice? What do we give? What child should we offer up? What virgin can we find? How can we make the gods satisfied to take away their anger from us? Or you have this version of God that's always loving, always kind, and there's really no justice in that ever. But the gospel basically says God's perfectly just and he's perfectly good, perfectly loving. And he basically takes the chief of sinners and says, I will save you, not on the basis of what you've done, but actually in spite of what you've done, on the basis of my son. What Jesus did for you in dying in your place Second thing I want you to take a look at is this idea, what it means to be identified with Christ. Second thing we'll take a look at. Verses 19 and 20 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. If I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. This idea that I want really kind of bring to your attention here is this idea that I brought up last week. And I identified Jesus, or I talked about Jesus being the new representative head. Here's what I mean by that. Kind of a big phrase, big concept, maybe new to some of you, but here's, I want to kind of flesh it out a little bit to you. Um, the way the Bible speaks of all of us in humanity is in terms of, of associating us with a particular family. Um, contrary to popular belief, most people think, and by Jesus' day, most Jews identify themselves as either sons of Abraham, basically sons of the devil, all right? You're either son of Abraham or you're son of the devil. Um, but God actually puts them in a bigger category, and 
Paul actually get in this argument a little bit later because he's actually going to say, you know, you guys always are always going back to Abraham being like, we're you know, sons of Abraham. As if Abraham's like this icon of the faith. But he's like, do you know that Abraham actually was, was a pagan Gentile? <laughs> he's like, did you know that? I mean, like, just FYI. I mean, you Jews build your entire theology on the chief of all Jews, Abraham. But he's like, FYI, he's, he's actually a pagan Gentile. Thought you guys should think about that. That's the whole point. So in other words, the Bible actually speaks in terms of families. Two different types of families. And the family that we are naturally birthed into as human beings is the family whereby our head of our family is Adam and Eve. So in other words, uh, all of us, whether or not you knew it or not, are brothers and sisters. And our, and our mom and dad, by birth, gets traced back all the way to Adam and Eve. And you're like, I had no idea. Like, yes, the person sitting next to you is your brother or sister. So treat them with respect, all right? So the point that I would make is this, is that by, na- by natural birth, our father and mother, Adam and Eve, are who gave us life. But because they sinned, their sin led to death. So therefore, we're born, and we sin too. And ultimately, we will die too, just like them. We will suffer, we'll have pain, we'll have hardship, we'll have difficulty throughout this life in which we live in. Women will actually give birth, and it will be hard, called labor. Men will actually work, and the ground will actually fight back and resist. Men will try to cultivate the earth, and the earth will be constantly in this ongoing cosmic struggle and battle in the same way. And God basically says, I'm going to make the earth do to you, Adam, exactly what you do to me. It's going to fight against you, just the way you fight against me. It's not going to bear a lot of fruit for you, just like you don't bear a lot of fruit for me. And, and it will be a constant reminder to you. I believe it's actually God's grace. God's way of saying, look, I just, just let's, if you ever forget, if you ever forget what you've done in your relationship with me by walking away, by trying to be an autonomous individual being, God says, I, I want to remind you of the earth. Just think about the earth. Women, if you forget, just think about childbirth, how difficult that is. And that's God's grace of saying, just don't forget This is the pain that oftentimes is associated with rebellion. Walking away from the God of life will lead to difficulty and hardship and pain. Not because God is a bad God wanting to just inflict wrath upon those, but as like a good father. Be like if you were a parent and you had a child, say like two years old, and you're like, listen, I have an entire backyard for you to play in. It's amazing. There's a sandbox out there. There's swing set for you to jump up and down on or swing on. There's a trampoline back there for you to jump up and down. There's a little bike out there. And the child's like... So all that stuff's lame. I'm going to play in the street. I'm going to play on South Aguera. That's where I want to play. A busy street where there's a lot of cars. That seems really fun. And the parent's like, no, you don't understand. It's, that's death. That will kill you. You'll go out there and you'll die. But the kid's too young to even understand or comprehend what that even means. And if in the middle of the night, the kid's like, I'm going to get out. It's like the little kid on the family guy. You know, he just like gets out. And he's just like, he's like actually seems more mature than he really is. But then he's now fighting, resisting, and he ends up paying the price. It's not just so much that God is looking for a way to condemn or damn. But God sets out standards and says, here's life. You walk in this, you'll find life. But here's the path of death. You walk in this, and you'll find trouble and hardship and difficulty. And I don't want you to walk in that trouble, difficulty, and hardship. But our representative mom and dad, Adam and Eve, sinned, setting a precedent whereby you and I continue to sin. And we will die. So what the Bible declares is that God comes into this earth to establish a new family name. Like what Paul says, a new family, whereby heaven and earth will bend its knee to this new family head. It's Jesus. 
whereby in his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This new family is complete royalty. It's Jesus. Jesus comes into this earth, suffers and dies the death that we should have suffered and died, lived the life that we should have lived, lived that we failed to live. Jesus becomes a new family head. So this is one of the reasons why the Bible describes and speaks in terms, it says there's a first birth, which is what you had when you were born, that's where you get your birthday from, but then there's a second birth, which we call new birth, born again, whereby life hits you. You're now a family, you're now in the family of God, a different family, new brothers and sisters, new people that have trusted and had confidence in Christ. You need to know that. That there is a new way by which we're identified with Christ. And here's what Paul basically means. Where he says, for I through the law have died to the law so that I might live to God. Here's the point that Paul is basically making. Is that if Jesus came into this earth and was setting out a new, as a new representative head. A new family head. New Adam. If that's who Jesus is, then that means that Jesus died my death. So let's, let me put it this way. If you and I, if we've all sinned against God's commands, God's law, we all agreed last week, I think, hopefully all of you did, that God's commands are actually good. God's commands are not necessarily burdensome. They're not meant to destroy us. They're actually very good. We looked at this very briefly last week. I mean, it's very good for you to not steal from your neighbor. We all agreed. That's, that's actually a really good law. But if you break that law, and let's say you steal your neighbor's wife, now you got pain. You got hurt. Children of that family are going to feel pain and hurt. Because no little child should watch mom have to like, run off with another dude and sleep with another dude. No child, children should ever see that. That was my story. That's what happened with my parents. My mom did that. The point that I would make is that that shouldn't be something that sh- children should have to see. It brings pain. It brings hurt. It brings hardship. So sin is very real. And so the point that I would make is that if God establishes this particular rule, this standard, and we all agree that the law is something that looks at us and says, do these things, and we don't do these things, God says, if you do them, you'll live. If you don't do them, you'll die. If we can all agree to the fact that we basically have all broken God's law, therefore, we're all dead. It's like one of my favorite movies called Dead Man Walking. Sean Penn. It's a great movie. He's a, he's, he's a guy who's on death row. He's just waiting for his execution date. He's dead, even though he's still alive. That's just like you and I. We're all dead. All of us. We're all just simply waiting for the moment whereby we will die. The point of the matter is, is the Bible says that Jesus came and he actually accelerated all that. And so he took upon himself the judgment that we would have incurred. And so therefore, Paul looks at that and says, man, Jesus actually died in my place. So his death is actually my death. He died for me. So therefore, as Jesus died, it's almost as if God sees that I died. I mean, God can't look at me and be like, why did you do that? Why did that happen? Why did you act this way? Because I can just simply look at Jesus and be like, well, Jesus took it all, took the blame, took the pain for me. God would be like, okay, it's covered. Jesus died for you. You were dead. But Jesus didn't just die, and that was the end of it, end of story. Jesus actually rose again. So Paul carries the concept even further. He says, if Jesus died for me in my place, and my death is actually associated or tied up in Jesus' death, then that means, logically, if Jesus rose again from the dead, then I've also risen again from the dead. I'm a new being. I'm a new creature. I'm a new creation. I'm something brand new. 
And I live a life that really isn't my own because the life that I have is actually indebted to God. Does that make sense? God rescued me. God rescued you. Do you know that? And so the idea is that I'm indebted now to this great God who loved me and died for me on my behalf for my sin and actually rose his son from the dead so that now the life I live is actually, even though I'm in the flesh still, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live just trusting Jesus. My life belongs to God because of what Jesus did for me. Let me explain it to you like this. In Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it this way. It's really good. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. He says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So what he's doing is he's comparing and contrasting the old representative head, Adam, and the new representative head, Jesus. The old representative head, he said, he lived in disobedience. And because of his disobedience, we were all made sinners. The new representative head, Jesus, was always obedient to, to the Father. Everything God asked him to do, even die on the cross, Jesus says, I'll do it. He was obedient. And because of Jesus' obedience to death, that paved the way whereby you and I can have life. He goes on, and he says, so sin reigned in death, grace now reigns in righteousness. So if sin was the result of Adam and continued to reign in death, he died. So you and I, we sin, we will die. So, but Jesus comes in as a new representative head, and he says, and now the life that I live, and I'm sorry, he says, and grace now reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Adam sinned, and he died. Jesus obeyed, and he lived. So if I'm just simply in Adam, then I'm associated with the representative of that family, which is Adam, and if Adam dies, then I'll die. If Adam will be judged, I'll be judged. Unless I break out of that family and brought into a new family, then I will just simply live, continue to live the same type of life and live the same type of death that Adam had. But if I'm able to be in this new family, have a new representative head, in this case Jesus, then the obedience that Jesus lived before the Father is actually now attributed to my obedience. The life that Jesus lived is now actually attributed to my life. And the favor that Jesus had incurred with the Father becomes my favor that I have with the Father. Does that make sense? This is the way the Bible talks about this concept of representative head. They are and were and still are a patriarchal society. We in America, not so much. And so it's kind of a foreign idea for us to think about a patriarch as having so much uh, precedence over a family. But this is the way it was. This is the way the Bible speaks about it. So it's important for us when we approach the Bible to not kind of read our own concepts into it, but to try to understand what it's trying to convey. So the last thing I want to point out is this is that not only, one, are we justified as sinners, so as sinful people, God makes us right with God. Secondly, we are identified with Christ. We have a brand new family head or family representative whereby you're identified with Christ in his life as well as in his death. And so therefore, as God looks at Jesus' life and death and says, I'm really satisfied with everything Jesus did. If Jesus is your representative head, God looks at you and says, I'm really satisfied with everything they did. You're like, but I'm a sinner. God says, I'm really satisfied with everything you did because I don't see your sin. I see Jesus. I see your representative head. This is why God can look at you and say, even when you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, God died for you. Christ died for you. God loves you. You understand that? I hope you guys get that. Because if you get that, that will begin to change the way that you think about Christianity. It will change the way that you live your life. 
The third thing I want to focus on and wrap it up here is this concept of the love of God. Verse 20 says this, that God loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul finishes his thought in chapter 2. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I want to start with that concept. Paul's point is that if I can be made right with God any other means or any other way outside of Jesus' death on the cross, that would basically mean that Jesus' death was really for no reason at all. He didn't need to die. He didn't need to suffer. didn't need to come into this trailer park called Earth. didn't need to deal with people like Judas's. Didn't need to have to actually interact with religious people like the Pharisees and the scribes, Sadducees. Didn't have to be betrayed. Didn't have to eat the bad food that we have down here. He could have just stayed up in glory and that would have been fine. And God would have just said, do these things and you'll be fine. But the point of the matter that Paul is basically trying to argue is that there is no other way. We look at this when we were in the book of Revelation. Because some of us are really trying hard to find some other alternative way to be made right with God. And the point that we looked at in the book of Revelation was that at the end of the day, everything in this world, everything that we trust in, everything we place confidence in is broken. Everything has been marred and stained by the devil. Every relationship. So some people are like, maybe I'll be saved by having a good relationship with somebody. Well, then you begin to realize that those persons, those people that you're trying to place confidence in, they're not perfect. They let you down. They fail. They drop the ball. And they leave you broken. So you're trying to find some sort of salvation, some, some sort of identity in that person, and they let you down. Everything on this planet is broken or corrupted or marred. Everything. So what we need to save us is something that's not from this planet. Scholars, theologians basically describe this as, kind of appropriately, term it as an alien righteousness, right? Not alien like something that, you know. But something that comes out from the outside into our world. And that's the idea. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. One of the most common verses most of us are familiar with is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God actually gifted to us his son. Jesus came from heaven, from that domain, into our earth. It was foreign. It was alien. It was outside of. It hasn't been marred by broken by, corrupted by, tainted by, bribed by. Do you get the idea? It's perfectly perfect and pure. That's who Jesus is. So that's Paul's whole point. So he wants us to understand that if righteousness can come through any other particular stance or any other place, then Jesus didn't need to die. The second thing that we see in this, going back to sort of the main part of the verse, is that he points out that God loved him. He speaks of this in what's called the perfect tense in the Greek, which basically means it's a past act. He loved me. It's complete. Now, there are occasions in the Bible where basically Paul will pray for people, you know, I pray that you would know the love of God. But this is not what's happening here. Paul's basically saying, I'm looking to a particular moment in time where God demonstrated beyond any question how much he loves me. He's pointing out to the cross. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 says this. It's for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. I pray for you. I pray that you, who be, that you would be rooted and grounded in love, that you may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul in some ways speaks in paradox here. He's like, I want you guys to know something that's unknowable. How does it happen? 
His whole point is that I want you to understand something of the vastness, the bigness, the greatness, the majesty of God's love, the weightiness of God's love. It's big. Some of you guys live so much of your life trying to get God to like you. Because you live your lives. All people live their lives. Now we can even say, sociologists might say, ah, people, the whole idea of guilt, people don't live under that. Really? Everybody lives under that to some degree. Everybody lives. Now sometimes sociologists or sometimes even false teachers, preachers will say, really what people need to hear is that you're just really good. And there is a sense by which there's a nobility about mankind. Francis Schaeffer used to say, man is both noble but evil. He's unkind. So there is a nobility about humanity, but there's also a sense whereby as human beings, we're really cruel. We're not nice to our own kind. Even people that are of our own same color of skin. I mean, all the fragmentation even in the world in which we live in, even colors of our own skin we still don't even like. There's something really wrong with the race in which we live in, with humanity. And the Bible basically wants us to understand is that all of us are driven to some degree, somehow, some way to try to gain love or gain favor from God. A lot of us live our lives trying to get God to not be angry at us anymore. Maybe that's why some of you are even here at church this morning. You're like, life hasn't been going so good. Maybe you've been sick. Maybe something's happened to you this past week. You're like, you know what I really need? I just need to go to church because maybe God's pretty frustrated with me. I know he kind of gets grumpy a little bit. I have no idea. He's a little bit capricious. Maybe if I go to church, maybe God will look at me and think I'm, think I'm you know, give me a good grade in school. Maybe God will help me stop being sick in, anymore. But the reality is, is it's driven by this motivation that I think God's angry. I want to make him not angry. And the Bible's basically saying, what you need to understand is that nothing we do can make him unangry. <laughs> the only thing that can make God unangry, or the Bible's term for it is a big word, propitiation. I mean, God's satisfied. How do you get God satisfied? I mean, he's a big God. You're like, I'll give him money. Really? I mean, I'm certain there's planets out there that are just made out of pure gold. All right, we haven't even just discovered them yet. Can you imagine like a whole planet the size of the sun made out of just like diamond? Can you imagine that? You're like, I'll give God $3,000. Really? You think that'll make God happy? All right. I mean, the point of the matter is, is that nothing we do, it's, it's not, it's not going to somehow satiate God. He's got everything. I mean, some of you are going to run into this very quickly over the next few weeks. And you're like, what do I buy my dad? Dude's got everything from like weird, you know, socks to funky ties to books to shavers. What can I buy dad? And there's nothing more to buy. All right? The point of the matter is, some of us think of God like that. I mean, the reality is that God, there's nothing else that we can provide. The one thing that God looks at and says, I'm really satisfied by it's Jesus. And to place your confidence in Jesus is what God looks at and says, I'm satisfied. Some guys here. You know, guys that live their whole life sort of with this complex because dad never said you're a good kid. Dad never loved them. Dad never demonstrated how much he cared for them. Dad never like sat them down and looked them in the eyes and said, I'm proud of you, son. So li- they live their whole life with this complex of trying to forge an identity for themselves, working hard, building businesses, being entrepreneurs, starting things, because they've got something to prove. They just want somebody to acknowledge, to identify, to recognize how good they are, what they've done. 
And one of the best ways to identify this, to know this, if this is you, is because you live for that. When you have it, when somebody acknowledges you, pats you on the back, strokes you, says, you're amazing, you're doing a great job, you feel as if your whole entire world is just incredible. I mean, it's, it's like you're living on the planet Pandora, right? An avatar. It's just like everything's amazing. The world is phenomenal. But if somebody looks at you and says, you could have done better. That was your profit margin? That's pretty bad. You're not that good. This project failed. You're not a very smart person. That move was dumb. You feel as if your entire world was destroyed. Everything was ruined. And the reason is, is because your entire life is being lived trying to find favor from somebody. Rather than God, you're putting this God complex on somebody else and you're looking desperately for somebody to acknowledge you because you know deep down inside You just don't feel as if what you do is enough. And you just want somebody to acknowledge that what you do is enough. Some of you women, you want desperately to find and carve out an identity for yourself. And you think it's found in a relationship. What you need to understand is that the Bible basically describes God as loving us. Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of you women want to have a relationship so bad. You want to be loved. You want somebody to sit down with you and look you in the eyes and say, you're beautiful. Your hair is gorgeous. Your body is pleasing and satisfying to me. You want somebody to say that to you. You desire that with all your heart. What ends up happening is you're willing to find somebody, something that would just speak that into your life. And the moment you find that, what you need to understand is the God, the idol that is behind all that, basically keeps taking from you. So it's not enough for, for them to just speak into your life and say, you're loved, I love you, you're beautiful. But they want something in return. This is the way guys oftentimes operate. They'll tell you, I love you, but they'll tell you, I love you, as the payment to get sex. And so you're willing to lay down on a bed, to open your body up, to be sexually abused, to be sexually used by another man. And at the end of the day, all that you really desire is just to be loved. You just want somebody to speak value into your life, dignity and respect. And at the end of the day, your idol just left you feeling defiled, took something from you, never even ultimately gave you everything it promised. Do you understand that no matter what gods we serve, no matter what idols are out there we bend our knees down to, that nobody can ever say of those gods, of those idols, of those false gods, of those false deities, they love me. You can't. You can't say that. But a Christian who's met Jesus can actually say of God, he loves me. He gave himself for me. You know that idols, the false gods that we bend down to and serve, the false deities that we give ourselves over to with hopes that they will actually make good on the promises they give to us, they never deliver. They never deliver. They never offer to us what they promise us. In fact, at the end of the day, they take from us. They constantly rob from us. They steal from us. And as that relationship continues to go on, they end up taking more. And at the end of the day, you're left feeling defiled. So for the girl who has had numerous encounters sexually with the guy 
just wanting to be loved, at the end of the day, she feels defiled, she feels broken, she feels suicidal. For the man who is fighting desperately to find some sort of identity in his career, in his job, hoping, waiting for somebody to speak value, dignity, and respect into his life, who never gets it, at the end of the day, he feels frustrated, so either he feels completely ready to give up, because he's just completely at the end of his energy level, or he feels very angry, and he's full of rage, and he goes postal, just like an angry post worker who's just frustrated because nobody appreciates them, nobody loves them, nobody cares for them, because their entire identity is wrapped up in that thing. The point that I would make is this. The false gods we serve don't love you. They don't love you. Women, if you're in a relationship right now, you have a boyfriend who says he loves you, and he's not willing to commit, he's not ready, not willing to ask your hand in marriage, and he wants to have sex with you, and he's forcing to have sex with you, I'm telling you right now, he does not love you. He does not love you. You deserve better. You deserve better. He's saying anything he can just to get you to have sex, and then he will take from you. At the end of the day, at the end of that experience, you will feel defiled. That's what false gods do. They take and they defile you. Only Jesus is the only God that you can ever say, love me. Jesus doesn't take. He gives. Jesus doesn't leave you feeling defiled. He cleans your defilement. Jesus doesn't rob from you. He gives himself willingly, joyfully, generously to you. He doesn't take life from you. He gives his life down for you. This is why Paul can say, he loved me. He gave himself for me. This, guys, is the gospel. The gospel is not what you have to do for God. The gospel is what God has done for you. I hope you see that. Some of you guys, gals even, are so locked in the porn. You're like, how do you get out? You're addicted to it. You can't even break the cycles. You can't even preempt them and break them. You're locked in. There's other addictions that other of you guys have. To debt, spending money. I mean, you, you, you can pick what you want. We have these addictions. But the reality is, is people are always wondering, how do we break these addictions? How do we get out of them? Let me try to put it to you in a different context, a biblical context. Porn is about worship. You devote yourself to that which you value most. If you value a naked body most, then you will devote your time, energy, treasure, talents to it. You will make sacrifices. You will make sacrifices of having sex with your wife. Therefore, you will stop doing that just to devote your time to porn. You will stop hanging out with your friends just to devote to porn. If it's spending, you'll work more, which means that you have to take that work out of some sort of other portion of your relationship. You might take it away from your wife, from your kids, to work more, to get more money, to go out and buy more things. The point that I would make is this, is that we have worship issues. The reason why we sin is because we have worship issues. The way that you get yourself free from these addictions is you got yourself into these addictions by worship. The way that you get yourself free from these addictions is by worship. Worshiping the God who actually loves you. Doesn't take from you. 
but gives to you. False gods take and never give. False gods leave you defiled and then mock you. False gods get aggressive when you try to break up the relationship. Jesus loves you. I'm going to finish this right now and wrap this up. We're going to worship. We're going to respond to what God has to do, what God has said. We're going to have Evan come on up and we're going to sing. I want you guys to listen to this little song. It was written a long time ago. I'm going to just read it to you. It's pretty powerful. I want you guys right now to just kind of close your eyes. I want you to think about this. I'm going to read this. I'm going to pray. And we're going to worship. We're going to sing to God. We partake of communion. We partake of communion as a reminder of us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So if you're here, you're a believer, you love Jesus, you confess your sin, you've made your relationship right with God, I encourage you to go partake of the communion. Have them in the back areas to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. If you're not a Christian, the greatest way for you to honor God this morning is to confess your sins, to repent from sin, and to turn to Jesus. Listen to this song. It's a great song. It says this, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. His name is graven on his hands, or my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Or tell me you gotta leave. He says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Guys, that's the gospel. It's not what you now have to do for God. It's what God has done for you. When you get that, when you see that you're loved by God, the natural response is you're in a relationship now. A relationship that you didn't drive, you didn't provoke, you didn't initiate. It was one in which you were sought out by a big God who loves you and paid a price that's way beyond what you can even comprehend for you while you were still in straight up rebellion against him. It's not about you. It is about your joy, but it's about your joy being found in a God loves you deeply. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. We want to respond now in worship and honor to him. God, we thank you for the cross. We now just confess sin to you. I pray for any brothers or sisters here, God, that have just been wrestling and wondering, trying to figure out ways to make their life right. I pray that you would help them just to look to Jesus, look to the cross. For anybody here, God, who's not a Christian, who's not confessed sin, who's not turned from sin yet, and yet are still a slave to their own sin, that you would help them to see that Jesus actually came to free them. That not only are you just, but you're all also greatly loving. So we now give back to you our affection, our love, and our worship.